Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, we're talking about young horse growth and development. As a horse owner, I don't think there's anything more rewarding than bringing along a young horse. It's fun to watch them grow and learn and hopefully reach their full potential. By caring for a young horse, you're creating a foundation for its future. That extends past training and manners and includes their long-term physical health. How you feed and exercise your young horse now can affect his longevity and performance potential for the rest of his life. And that can be a little daunting when you consider it. To help guide us, we're joined tonight by Dr. Brian Nielsen, who's a professor and researcher at Michigan State University. Welcome, Dr. Nielsen. Michelle, thank you so much. I am so happy to be with you and all of our guests this evening. I think we'll have a fun discussion. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you were able to join us on this topic. Um, Dr. Nielsen, can you start out by telling us a little bit about your interest and research in this area? And then also, I want to note for everyone that you are a PhD researcher. Um, you're not a, a veterinarian, so we won't be covering medical topics or giving uh, veterinary advice tonight, um, but we are here to answer uh growth and nutrition type questions. So can you help people understand where your um, box is in this whole horse growth development and care and management area? Sure. Regarding the work I do, so at Michigan State, I do both teaching and research. And with a PhD, uh, my job is to try and find ways to make horses sounder, healthier, happier, and then when we fail, then they go to the vets, and they're the ones that fix them up. So it's kind of a team effort. I do a, a lot of collaborative research with some of the vets at Michigan State University. Um, but, you know, it's kind of one of those things about staying in your lane. Uh, I always tell people jokingly, yes, I'm not a vet. If you have me do surgery on your horse, it will die. Um, but <laughs> my area is the nutrition, the exercise, physiology, ways to try and make these horses develop uh, and to the athletes that we want them to be. And I actually, I'll give you a little bit more background on myself mm -hmm. and why this area is of very big interest to my, um, so the area of the horse industry that I have tended to focus on and, and for many years now is the racehorse industry. And when I was in grad school, I had a number of projects dealing with racehorses. And, and unfortunately, they can be a, a fragile athlete at times. And way back in the early 90s, we, there were some problems with horses being injured kind of exactly what's happening um, as we're speaking here these days. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I've been focusing a lot of my research on ways to help make horses more sound. And a lot of that starts when they're very young because it's trying to get that, that really good skeletal structure, have strong cartilage, try to have uh, improved tendons, things like that. And so any way we can do that is what we want to, to try and do. Well, I'm going to give everyone a quick review of our Ask the Horse Live format. We're going to be starting with the questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you have a question you'd like to ask during our live event or you'd like a clarification on one of Dr. Nielsen's responses, you can enter it into the chat window in front of you if you've joined us online. Uh, we're going to do our best to get to as many questions of yours as possible. If you're listening to our archive or our podcast and are interested in joining us live during our events in the future, you can register to receive our announcements at thehorse.com or visit thehorse.com slash askthehorselive. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Dr. Nielsen, our first question is from Emma in Ontario, Canada, and she wants to know, are young horses with poor or limited nutrition or exercise likely to develop problems later in life? If so, can these problems be reversed by care that the horse receives when they're an adult? You bet. So, Emma, that's a great question. And what I like best about it is you address both the nutrition and the exercise components of them. Um, and, and we want to talk about uh, to them together, but we'll kind of isolate them here a little bit. So on the nutritional factor, when we're working with young horses and feeding them, what we're really trying to do is have proper sustained growth. We don't want to have periods where they're not growing well, uh, having inadequate nutrition, because sometimes we can get what's referred to as compensatory growth, where suddenly they hit a growth spurt. And, and um, when you do that, you run the risk of having some problems develop. Now, some of that can be natural. And I use, for example, my son, who he's currently having one of those growth spurts. He's 14 years old and and soon he's going to be a whole lot taller than me, which actually is not hard to do. But um, 
you know, we don't want to go ahead and not allow him to grow. Um, but with our horses, sometimes where we make a mistake, and I, I think this evening we'll talk about it a little bit, where people are worried about horses trying to grow too fast, so they try and limit feed them a little bit. And uh, I don't know if that's necessarily a good idea. So when we're talking about nutrition, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Uh, we're talking about energy. We're talking about protein. We're talking about uh, some of the minerals. And one of the problems we have with some of these factors is unless you analyze your diet, you don't really know what you're feeding your horse. And in terms of minerals, uh, I'm a big proponent of a high forage diet, at least for older horses. We can talk a little bit later on regarding our young horses. But most people have no clue what they are feeding in terms of their forage. Uh, there is a great German researcher, and I love how he worded it. He said that the only good hay is a hay that has been analyzed. I like my German accent there. Mm -hmm. uh, but his point was great is until you know what's in it, you don't know what you're feeding. And we've run lots of hay analysis for various projects that we're doing, and very few hays really fulfill the requirements for all the nutrients in terms of particularly in minerals. So that was a long explanation, but I want to summarize that point. Um, if you don't provide the right nutrients when they're young and growing, you can mess them up, and it makes it harder for them when they're older. Uh, it doesn't mean it can't be reversed, but some of the damage that's done early, uh, you may create problems that you can't get rid of when they're old. And so really feeding young horses properly is one of the most critical times in their life for them to, for you to really know what you are feeding them. Now, I know we have lots to talk about tonight, so I want to also talk about the exercise component right here. One of the things that we realized a number of years back, and it was uh, we cemented it in my first project that I did back in at Michigan State when I arrived, was looking at stalling of young horses. And what we showed is that when we put young horses in the stalls without any access to sprint exercise, they can lose bone mass and all the slow work you do with them doesn't affect bone mass at all. It, they need speed because bone responds to speed. And um, again, we can come back to this issue a little bit later on, but the really positive thing is the second study we did was looking at whether or not uh, horses that were kept in stalls 24 hours a day, uh, horses that were kept out on pasture 24 hours a day, or those that were half in and half out, looking at uh, the bone mass of those, and certainly sticking into stalls for 24 hours a day, and this study was like two months long, resulted in decreased bone mass. So that's a bad thing. However, in line with Emma's question, we put those horses back out to pasture, all of them, and after a year, we went back and took x-rays again, and all of them were at the exact same spot in bone mass. And I took that as a great relief, because even if we do things wrong early on, if we can go ahead and restore the right type of exercise to these horses, we have a good chance of them restoring bone mass. So we want to avoid messing them up, but fortunately, there is the ability of the horse to compensate over time. Really long answer. Well, so our our next question is related. It's from Robert in Wisconsin, and he wants to know how closely related are feeding and bone development. If a foal is growing too quickly, can you can the feeding program slow growth? So you mentioned that in your previous answer. So is that something we want to do? Is that something we should do? Well, I'm going to tackle this two ways. First, I want to talk about feeding and bone development um, because nutrition is important. You need to have it. But unless you have the right exercise, it doesn't matter what you feed them. And so that's where people can make a mistake and they'll buy all kinds of supplements that may or may not do anything. And, and they'll really invest a lot of time in their feeding program because they want to make a strong skeleton. But what they don't realize is the primary factor that's really influencing bone strength is exercise. And I was asked a number of years ago, there was a, speaking of Germany, there was a, uh, a horse nutrition conference in Germany that I was asked to speak at because there were a number of people across the world that were using various 
markers of bone metabolism. So you take a blood sample and you look for these markers of bone metabolism. And they were using them in nutrition studies, and they weren't find, finding treatment differences. And they thought, well, these markers of bone formation and resorption, they must not work. So they wanted me to come over and give my my take on that. And so I did it, and I looked back at a lot of our nutrition studies, and I would agree with them. Very rarely did we find that these markers of bone formation or resorption, just markers of bone metabolism, were altered by changing up the feeding program. Now, at the same point, I went ahead and analyzed uh, all the studies we had done where we altered exercise, and in almost all of those studies, those markers of bone metabolism had changed. So the take-home point that I like to leave people with on that one is absolutely you want to feed them right. But if you think you're going to go ahead and make strong bone through nutrition alone, you're not. Uh, and so it doesn't matter what you feed them if you're not providing them with the right amount of exercise. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit later. But now I want to go to the part on um, the second or the second part of this question, where it was if a foal is growing too quickly, can the feeding program slow growth? Um, there is a lot of disagreement out there um, in, in the horse industry regarding horses that are growing fast, and we're trying to avoid some of these developmental orthopedic disorders, and I absolutely want to avoid those at all costs. Um, however, fast growth is a positive thing uh, from the standpoint of if we're looking at showing or racing or selling horses, you know, big is preferable not that a big athlete is better than a small athlete shoot i'm five foot six and a half um you know i'm i'm all for small um but at the same point if you're trying to sell people like big horses and but the concern is is people say well if the horse is growing too fast we want to stop that growth so we want to develop a feeding program to slow them down and that's a concern to me what i really think people need to do a better job at is evaluating their diet. They don't do that typically. Um, they don't really know what they're feeding their horse in terms of what the, the forage component is. Even if they're feeding grain, what's in the feed uh, mix that they're giving. They might know about the supplements they're giving, which they probably don't even need to do. Um, so I'm a little hesitant on trying to suggest that somebody should try to slow the growth down. And, and I like to compare it back to our humans. You know, you, you don't want to go ahead and oh, you know, your child's growing really fast. Time to start not feeding them as much. If you put <laughs> yeah. it in terms of those, it just doesn't make sense. So our next question has another question about growing too fast. And it's Terry in New Mexico. And Terry wants to know how much a suckling should grow each month. You know, they grow a lot when they're with their mamas. Um, but Terry also wants to know if there's such thing as a suckling that's growing too fast. So what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Terry, great question. Uh, and, and yes, these horses, uh, you know, with their babies, they grow tremendously. They're growing at the fastest point in their life. Um, and, and this does go back to what we were talking about regarding this concern about horses growing too fast. Certainly, there are more developmental orthopedic disorders. When we're talking, you know, physitis, we're talking uh, osteochondrosis in horses that grow fast. But research hasn't clearly defined whether that's caused by fast growth by itself or genetics that cause a horse to grow fast. So is it a genetic link? Or the other part to the whole story is if you don't have a perfectly, I don't even need to say perfectly, but a very well-balanced diet, then if you have a horse that's genetically prone to grow fast, which personally I think is not a bad thing, um, but if you don't have your diet balanced correctly, then you can get some improper growth. And the way I like to look at it, I always talk about nutrient to calorie ratios, and I'm going to explain that. So our nutrients in our diet, that's the things such as the protein and the amino acids that make up the protein, uh, as well as the minerals. And so when I say nutrient to calorie ratio, obviously the calorie comes from the energy. And you want to have a balance between the amount of the nutrients you provide compared to the amount of calories. And another analogy I use is like a construction site. So the, the bricks at a construction site, those would be the nutrients. Those are the things that you use to build bone and muscle. And then the construction workers are the energy. 
So if you go ahead and have lots of nutrients around, lots of bricks around, they get in the way and it makes construction hard and people are tripping over them. Now, if you have the opposite where you don't have enough bricks around and you have too many of these construction workers, you know, they're sitting there doing cat calls at the gals that are going by and they're causing problems. So it's really trying to have a balance between the energy to do the work to help build these tissues and the nutrients, the building blocks to build the tissues. But the problem is, is most people aren't qualified to properly evaluate their ration to find out if you do have the proper ratio between the two. And so if you're not certain about that, then we can run into problems with these horses growing fast. If you do have the properly balanced diet and you don't have the new, uh, the genetics, then there really isn't concerns with growing fast. That's a really wimpy answer because I've given you all these little wishy-washing areas, but it really isn't so simple where you can say, don't feed for fast growth because I love the idea of feeding for fast growth. I don't know that there is too fast, but you better have things really well balanced if you're going to be having these young horses growing fast. People get by with less problems if they're feeding for a slow rate of growth and they don't have their diet balanced. But if you're feeding for a fast rate of growth, you better have good nutrition. Did I lose you? Are you there? Oh, Can you hear? I'm there. Okay. There, I panicked okay. for a few seconds. Okay. <laughs> no, sorry about that. Um, so I, I, I'm thinking about your answers and the questions that were submitted by our, our audience during registration. And they were all about horses growing too fast. And so I think we have mm -hmm. all these responsible horse owners who feed their horses well, right? So what about stunting though? Because we didn't get any questions about stunted growth. And I know like I've I've had some horses that have you know babies that I've worked with that came through from not great backgrounds and it did yeah. seem like they were stunted. So is stunting a, a a real potential if if a baby doesn't get the nutrition they need? You bet. I'm glad you brought that up. Absolutely. Stunting is a real possibility. You know, uh, I think my parents didn't feed me. That's why my height. Uh, but it worked out great in a career riding racehorses. It's, it's a good thing. I'm glad my parents didn't love me. Um, so they, uh, you know, and when you're describing the stunting thing, I too was thinking this case of, you know, the animals that have been neglected and didn't get the right nutrition. And truthfully, yeah, they don't grow as tall and they don't reach their maximum height. Um, and the comparison I like to use, and it's just basically stating a fact and however people will view it as such, but in the racehorse industry, if you look at a lot of our jockeys, they tend to come from uh, third world countries where nutrition may not have been great with their growing up, and they ended up not getting as tall. Uh, here in the States, uh, we have great nutrition. People are getting taller and taller. I'm looking up at everybody these days. And... Uh, so if you're getting the good nutrition, you certainly have, you'll reach your genetic capacity. Whereas if you are limit fed, if you have poor nutrition when you're young and growing, then you certainly are going to have stunted growth. And then again, the other problem we get to it, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, was the compensatory growth situation. Where if you have a young horse that's not been fed well, and it's thin, and you know that it has had poor nutrition, there's a little bit of a trick to trying to get it going back the way it should because you can't just put a bunch of feed in front of it, really promote a lot of fast growth because you're putting fast growth on a skeletal system that's been poorly developed to begin with. And we end up running into a lot of problems there. So if you've had a horse that hasn't had good nutrition and it's young growing one, I'll just be really blunt. It's tricky as to how you go ahead and feed it up because they will have fast growth. Once they get good nutrition in front of them, they will grow fast. But you have to be careful about the quality of growth because it, that would be the one time where I'd be worried about growing too fast is yeah. if you've had that horse that hasn't been fed well. Yeah, so those refeeding or neglect type cases are a little bit more challenging. Is that a time to get a nutritionist and or your vet involved? Yeah, I, I would highly recommend that. Um, and 
the interesting thing about veterinarians, again, they're trained in medicine and surgery and things that, again, if you have me advise you on that, good luck with your horse because that's not my training. And uh, I'm always impressed with veterinarians because they do have to know something about everything or so it seems. So in this case, I would tend to get somebody who's trained strictly in nutrition Mm -hmm. from the standpoint of they've been able to focus their attention on that. Uh, I do have some vet friends that are fantastic nutritionists, um, but most of them, you know, you have one class in vet school on nutrition, and the fact of the matter is, is they're covering all animal species, you know, in that nutrition course, and it's hard to get a lot of detail on it. Um, Now, if it's one who does have a passion in nutrition um, and, and has taken upon themselves to get further education in that, certainly, and to be honest, even the the veterinarian who may not have had that uh, that passion to explore nutrition, they've at least had some nutrition background as opposed to a lot of horse owners who may have never had any training in that area. So definitely seek a professional. Nutritionist is a great choice. Contact your local university where they might have the extension service. Those people, if they don't know the answers, they know who can um, you know, they knew who to contact in order to give you that information. But, you know, you're certainly, your veterinarian can provide you some guidance on that, too. We have a follow-up question uh, from our live audience. Uh, Jacqueline wants to know about where the average horse owner can test the hay that they're purchasing. Can you explain to us a little bit about yeah. how we test hay and where we can send that off to? You bet. Uh, in the United States, there is a great laboratory that does a lot of um, hay analysis. They do grain analysis too. And, and you can access their website online. It's Equa Analytical. So Equa uh, Analytical, or they also go by Dairy One. And so you can kind of Google either of those terms, and I'm sure it'll take you to their website. I think it's based through Cornell University. It's definitely based in New York. And they will give you details on the website as to how to even take like a hay sample or take a pasture sample to send it on in. And even for our research, you know, unless we're analyzing a lot of uh, diets and getting our laboratory up and running for that, we often will send our samples out that way too. And uh, they have a, a library, a reference library, where you can compare all the different hays that have been analyzed um, and, and same thing with the grains, uh, just to kind of get an idea as to what might be normal different nutrient concentrations. Our next question is from Jenna in Florida, and she says that she's read that exercising foals is beneficial to their bone growth. How much exercise is re- recommended? So, Jenna, this is my passion. Exercise is completely the thing I'm most passionate about, especially when it comes to young horses and it comes to bone growth. Um, there's so much to this. If you want to talk about how much exercise does it take to make the bone stronger, uh, a, a young horse sprinting 50 yards, that's plenty to prevent bone loss and to make bone strong. Now, that's bone. There's a whole lot of other aspects to this, which is if if you want to give me or if you want me to give you my preference as to how to manage a young horse keep it out on pasture. That's going to be the best way. When we stick them into stalls, we're limiting them. Now, I I believe like having your horse turned out on pasture, your young horse, for five seconds per day might be adequate to make bones strong. Because when you turn that horse out, it's going to run, and it's going to run really fast, at least most horses that I've worked with, because they want to run and play. And in that short little sprint, is all the stimulus the bone needs to become stronger. So so the wonderful thing is I could say five seconds. Now, I'm not advocating five seconds because, first of all, good luck catching your horse five seconds after you turn them loose. Um, But more importantly, there are so many other aspects to it. So cartilage responds to exercise. You want to have exercise because cartilage is avascular, meaning it doesn't have a blood system. It doesn't get its nutrients through blood vessels. What it does is it gets its nutrients through diffusion. So as that cartilage is um, compressed and released and compressed and released on every stride, it's squishing fluid out and the fluid comes back in and that's 
how it gets its nutrition. When we stick these horses in stalls, it isn't having that happen. So that's not a positive thing. The other thing is, is when we stall them part of the day and then turn them out, there's some evidence in terms of some of these uh, developmental orthopedic disorders um, that we might actually be creating some problems. And it may deal with the fact that they go out there and, and they run really fast and they'll get to the end of a pack and turn real hard. And one thing to remember is circular exercise is bad. Straight line exercise is good. So if you go ahead and you have a young horse and it's running hard, that's good. But when it gets to a fence and has to turn, that's bad. And so if we keep them penned up, don't allow much exercise, and then when we turn them out, they go out and do that type of exercise, we're getting some benefit, but we might be doing some damage too. So if you have them turned out all day long and they're out there and, yes, young horses, they're going to play a little bit. That's great. That's stimulating bone, but they're probably not going to do much damage. And, and the real trick is when we're talking exercise, the thing is, is, again, there's good exercise and there's bad exercise. And something that's going to bother folk, but I'm going to call it like it is, um, like lunging, is kind of detrimental. And we're getting ready to start a big project where we're going to analyze that even more. But there's been some other studies that have been done. The problem is, is as the horse is going in a circle, you have uneven loading of the joints. So, you know, when a horse is going in a circle, it's leaning. And that foot, when it hits the ground, it hits at an angle. And then that foot goes flat and that ankle twists. So you're putting a lot more force on one side of that joint than the other. And that's where we create some problems. So it's not as easy to say how much exercise that bull needs. It's also important to talk about the right type of exercise. Um, and if you give me my preference, just allow them to be outside on pasture, being a horse, and you're going to have pretty much all the benefits you need. Well, I think that uh, dovetails nicely into the next question I'm going to ask you, which is from Molly in Kansas. And she wants to know, can I train a weanling the same way I train a two-year-old that is using round pen work to make the weanling easier to catch? So people often ask me regarding round pens versus lunging. Um, I tend to think of a round pen as less of a problem for a couple reasons. One, we tend to not use a round pen as much. You know, I, I go around and I, you know, I have horse shows all over and people are lunging, you know, 15, 16 year old horses. You know, they're lunging their dressage horse. Just anytime they, before they get on a horse, they'll lunge it. Whether they need it or not, that's a whole nother point. But uh, people often do it as a regular part of their training program. People don't use a round pen that way. Typically, they use a round pen when they need it, and it's not necessarily a regular part of theirs. So um, that's one aspect. The other part is when a horse is on a lunge line. Now, first of all, there are people that are great at lunging a horse, and it's balanced, and it's not pulling, and its shoulder's not, you know, going to the outside. Um, but oftentimes, we see people who, you know, they're hanging on the horse's head. It's not balanced going around there, and it's causing a lot of problems in terms of how it's landing on its legs. Um, the other part that's amusing regarding lunging is oftentimes the faster a horse goes, the smaller the circle because they start to pull it in so the horse doesn't run away from them. But in essence, the smaller the circle and the faster you go, the bigger the problem. Uh, if you go really slow and it's a large circle, really not that hard on joints, but it's the smaller circles and the faster circles that cause problems. In a round pen, you typically don't have a lunge line attached to it. I know you, some people would do that, but the horse is going around on its own, tends to be more balanced, and so it's less of a problem there. The other thing that occurs with a round pen is if it's a solid wall round pen and you have sand, as you know, that horse gets used on a regular basis, sand gets kicked up on the wall, and it kind of makes a bank surface. Now, I always find it amusing when a farm manager goes ahead and has a worker uh, or themselves go in there and rake the sand away from the wall because, in essence, they're getting rid of the banking. And that banking is good, 
because when that horse is going around at that angle, that banking kind of helps to match it. When you're lunging a horse, that doesn't occur. You don't have any banking. So, okay, that was my round 10 discussion, but now let's go back to the question. Um, I think it's fine to teach this young horse, uh, you know, do a little round 10 work with them. I don't want to work any horse, whether it's a weanling or whether it's a two-year-old, too much in circle because that's where we create a problem. But I, I think doing a little bit of round 10 work, um, you know, the more we do with our young horses from the mental standpoint, the better off we're going to be later on. Now, that doesn't mean you just drill them on stuff. And I like to use the comparison, you know, when we have kindergartners or first graders, we have a lot more recess time because they can't handle staying focused for a long time. Same thing occurs with our babies. You know, you need to have shorter lessons. So I probably would not work as long with the weanling as I would with a two-year-old from a mental standpoint. Um, but you certainly can get some of that training done so that by the time they're a yearling or a two-year-old and a lot bigger, they at least have a lot more handling already under their belt. Um, that's interesting that you mentioned that about the young horses because we just published an article today on a study about uh, babies and teaching them to lead and how they showed more uh, signs of stress and biting if they didn't have days off from training, which I thought was really interesting. Oh. I know like when I had when my um, last baby baby was a baby, he was the only horse I had. And so he got a lot of attention and he probably, I probably drove him crazy. <laughs> like, so. He's like, mom, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I just well, want to go run and play in the pasture. But. Well, regarding halter training, I, and I'll, this is off topic, but it's mm -hmm. right along with what we're discussing right now is uh, I was one of those people who, you know, was a fan of Ray Hunt. He used to go uh, and give clinics at the school I was doing undergrad and, and I remember somebody asked him, you know, how old should a horse be, you know, when you halter break it? And he said, well, I would at least wait until it's dry. And uh, <laughs> I've used that logic all the way. Any baby that I have born up my place, you know, I'm halter breaking it the same day. And the thing is, it is so simple. It takes like two fingers on the lead rope and it's giving and releasing. And it takes on average about 12 minutes before the baby has it totally figured out. And mm -hmm. so, you know, in 13, 14 minutes, the lesson is done. Often come back the next day and do it again, and they're following you around like a puppy dog. By yeah. contrast, I know people who wait until after they're weaned, and holy cow, that could be an adventurous little thing. <laughs> um, I don't want to get in an argument with a horse that's, you know, uh, a little bit bigger and stronger. Let's just get it all over with right at the beginning. And there's not even an argument with these little babies because they don't know anything different. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of benefit with doing stuff when they're young in terms of the mental aspect. But no, they're babies. It's yeah. kindergarten. And, yeah. you know, you do too much and they're going to, you're going to overdo it pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, while we're on this topic of working the young horses and the lunging and the round pen, I'm going to jump forward a little bit to a question that we got from Judy in Florida who wants to show her baby next year in yearling lunge line classes but she's concerned that, that the training will be hard on his joints can lunging enough mm -hmm. to train and condition him for, uh, for these classes cause any long-term problems so these lunge line classes are very popular and they're very pleasure type horses that are probably going yeah. slow when they're showing but can the yep. training be detrimental so we did a study on this 20 years ago when lunge line class was taking off, and um, uh, we were certain we were going to see a lot of problems. And, and again, I'm not a, uh, I, I don't lunge at all. I, I, I start a lot of horses under saddle, and the last time I lunged a horse I've had in training was, I think, 1989, because one of the trainers I was riding for did it. And so in, until we could show him a better way, you know, I did it his way, and the, then we eventually switched. So I, I was all prepared to show how horrible these lunge line classes were. And the farm where we were doing the research on, we had a number of different uh, treatments regarding horses that were lunged, horses that weren't lunged. And um, there were some supplements involved, et cetera, et cetera. But let's get back to the lunging thing. We didn't find any indicators of problem. And part of the reason was this trainer was really good. And by that, I mean watching him with those babies, boy, they were out at the end of the uh, lunge line. 
and they were looking like little western pleasure ponies. They were just going so slow around there uh, on the lope, and it made sense they weren't doing any damage. What I would suggest a person try, and I do tell this to my students all the time, is get out on um, you know the, the circumference of your circle that you'd have your horse go, and try and run or jog at the speed your horse is going. Um, so whatever side circle, whatever speed, try and do it. And first of all, if you can't run as fast as you're asking your horse to go or your horse is going around there, then it's probably going too fast and you're probably going to do some damage. Now, if you're uh, really good at the end of a lunge line and your horse is going very slow um, and you can go at that speed, try and feel if there's any torque in your legs. And the odds are if it's really slow, you probably won't have it. But then try and speed yourself up. Try and run on that circumference of the circle and feel for torque in your legs. As you start to go faster, you'll feel it. And so you don't even need any science behind it to tell you this is exactly how fast you can go or shouldn't go. You go out on the side of that circle and, and you try and go at that speed. And if it's not causing any torque on your legs to run that, then you're probably fine. If you're finding it a little bit uncomfortable because, ooh, yeah, um, then I probably wouldn't do it. We have a question from Gracie in Kentucky, and she wants to know, how do you judge that a young horse is ready for more workload? You know, I'm going to tackle this a couple different ways, and I'm going to start out with, I'm going to try and dispel a belief. And um, there is this belief that you should not put a young horse into training until after its knees have closed. And there's a lot of people that think it is wrong to train young horses. And in fact, I was just in Italy last week kind of speaking on this because there was this big push to prevent people from training or competing with horses any younger than four years of age. And so the, the one thing that may be a little shocking is there was a study that was done and was published in the Australian Vet Journal in, I think, 1973. And they looked at two-year-old thoroughbreds in race training. And they uh, did x-rays and they categorized them by whether the horse's knees were open, whether they were closed or somewhere in the middle. 77% of the horses that started training when their knees were open, again, uh, horses that started when their knees were open, 77% of them remained sound. And horses that started when their knees were closed or intermediate, only about 55% remained sound. So the point is, is about 20% more horses stayed sound that started with their knees open. So that goes opposite of what people believed. And even the authors at the time, they commented that many of the horses that uh, started racing when their knees were open or started training when their knees were open completed six or more races without problems, whereas many of the horses that started uh, training when their knees were closed um, had some problems. Many of them were even unable to get to their first race. The funny part is these authors, authors in 1973 did not believe their results. What they wanted to do is they made some claims that, well, probably what happened is there was some nutritional problem that caused the knees and the ones that had closed knees to ossify sooner. So it was probably nutritionally related. And like I always say, it's like, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. <laughs> they had the truth, which is that training young is beneficial when you wait until they're skeletally mature you can no longer make that skeleton strong and, and the reason for this is bone changes by two different techniques we have bone remodeling and there's bone modeling bone remodeling occurs over the horse's entire lifespan and i equate it to fixing potholes so you have your road you have a, a, a problem in the road a pothole you take some of that stuff out and you repatch it. So you haven't made your road bigger or stronger. You just have fixed it. That's bone remodeling and it occurs over the horse's entire life. By contrast, bone modeling, and this is something that only pure bone physiologists talk about. Most people who talk about changes in bone in horses, they talk only about bone remodeling. They don't even know about bone modeling. But bone modeling is the process by which that horse's bones develop by which they grow. It only occurs when that animal is young and growing. And the comparison to the roads that I would use there is 
when you're building a new road, you can build it a, a, a two-lane road, a little country road. You can build it a six-lane highway. Once you build it, it's really hard to change that road. So you want to build it as strong as you need while you're building it. If you're planning on this being a six-lane highway because you're going to have a lot of traffic, build it a six-lane highway. And so your only time to build it a six-lane highway is when it is young and growing. So I, I, I'm going to get to actually answering her question, which was, you know, regarding how you judge when a horse is ready for more workload. But I, I thought I wanted to start it out with emphasizing the fact that we often think it's bad to work them young. And actually all the research that we've done, uh, people over in Europe have done, uh, researchers in Australia, New Zealand, across the world, everybody who's working this area is finding the same thing that the time to make that body stronger is when it's growing. But now, again, I'm saying we're going to get back to it. How do you judge when a horse is ready for more workload? Pay attention to the horse's attitude. The attitude is going to tell you so much, and we often ignore that. If you have a horse with a great attitude and it's suddenly acting sour on you, you know what? You're doing too much. Um, another thing that you need to pay attention to is heat, swelling, any problems like that. Um, we do horses a huge disservice when we find like there's heat in the leg and we try and get rid of it. I'm not saying we shouldn't get rid of it, but we have just gotten a warning. And the warning says, there's a problem here. Don't do more. And instead, what we tend to do is we try to cover it up. We try to hide it. We try to get rid of the heat. We try to get rid of the swelling. And when we manage to get rid of it, we think, well, wonderful. We have no problems. It's gone. But actually, that might not necessarily be the case. We may have just hidden the warning sign that we've gotten. So in essence, uh, to answer Gracie's question, is pay attention to all the signs. If the horse's attitude is changing, you're doing too much. If everything, if the horse's attitude remains great, keep progressing. From the uh, keeping a horse sound, if you start seeing any heat, any inflammation, any swelling, stop it. Um, we often do things to horses. Uh, I, I have a soapbox that I stand on quite often, which is the use of cortical steroids in horses. And my concern with them is, it is a potent anti-inflammatory drug. It will remove pain. And it will make like the make it look like the problem is gone. The horse doesn't know the problem is still there. The riders don't know the problem is there. But you cannot fix a joint in a few days. But you can make it so nobody knows there's a problem with that joint in a few days. So what I'd say is listen to your horse and do not ignore the signs and do not try to cover up the signs because the horses will let us know when it's okay to go on. And even when we're trying to determine workload, and I do this with my human students that are, I encourage them to get out and exercise. And, but I always tell them, start out little, go very slow, go very short distance. If they want to run a 5k, do this couch to 5k type of training program. So you don't dislike what you're doing. Same thing with our horses. If, if they're not fit and you start getting on them and riding for long periods of time, they will hate you. And, I always say the worst day for a horse's life up here in Michigan is that first beautiful day where it's reached 60 degrees in April because so many people want to get on their horse and ride for two hours because it's so beautiful out. That is such a rude thing to do to the horse, and then you'll understand why the horse does not want to be caught the next day because you just made him or her really miserable. So start out slow. We can always progress. Progressing is important, but pay attention to the signs. If you see a bad attitude, if you see any heat, anything like that, time to back it down. Well, our next question is from Jessica in Alberta, Canada, and she wants to know if there are any physical impacts from lightly starting a late two-year-old. So should she be concerned about starting a horse uh, that's two? Oh, I would say uh, if it's a late two-year-old, you're too late. How's <laughs> <Okay>. that? <laughs> uh, the thing is, is that's, most people would say... surprise oh, audience. Like, it is. Yeah. I love the idea of starting horses young, but keep in mind with everything, you have to kind of have common sense. So one of my grad students recently bought a horse that's a yearling, and uh, I started it for her under saddle here kind of the end of uh, September, put a week on it. And um, and I think the, the horse was 18 months old. And so 
obviously, I'm not opposed to doing that. In fact, I think it's good. Um, now, and the student knows this, but I, of course, had to remind her that take it light, uh, don't do much, little time in the saddle, but put a good handle on it. You know, in other words, just get it used to all of this. And it's a sweet horse. And it's just, shoot, we had some of these, uh, what, 10 degree days here, like on Monday, and she's riding this around and they're getting along great. And I'm thinking, it's pretty impressive if mm-hmm. you got a month of riding on and it's 10 degrees out and it's not bucking you off. Um, but the thing is, is, um, you know, from the standpoint, there's uh, researchers over in the UK that are looking at tendon and ligament. And for the last 20 years, all of their research has shown that if you want to make tendon and ligament strong, you need to have exercise, uh, you know, they have this horse in training by the end of its yearling year. Now, I can't tell you what training is, and I don't know if they really have it down pat either. What we do know is no exercise up to that point, and you really have done a disservice to tendon ligament, you won't make it strong. So, uh, Jessica, feel free to ride your two-year-old. Um, there is not a problem with that. But the same guidelines that I would give you with a two-year-old, I would apply to a five-year-old or a 10-year-old, which is use common sense, pay attention to your horse, listen to their signals, but there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And and it's funny, one of my grad students, actually the same one, um, we're getting ready to, uh, she's way advanced on this, uh, but we're writing a paper um, regarding this issue of starting young horses uh, because there is this huge belief that it's bad. And when Justify won the Triple Crown, and I was a big Justify fan, I still am, uh, people were using that as a reason to say, see you stunt racehorses as two-year-olds. And my argument was, it was over a hundred years since the horse won the Kentucky Derby who had never raced as a two-year-old. So you had a freak, Justify. And by the way, I want to own a freak someday. I'm not saying freak is a bad thing. I'm thinking it's a really cool thing. So he did something nobody else had done who's never raced as a two-year-old. That's not good. That's not a good argument for saying you shouldn't race as a two-year-old. Most horses can't get it done without having done it. Um, and all the epidemiological studies that have been done looking at age, uh, that horses are racing at have shown that horses that you wait until they're four or five to start racing have more injuries than ones that do as a two-year-old. But I always like to say, to me, the problem is, is training horses by a calendar. And I made up that terminology, so don't Google it because it won't show up anywhere. But the thing is, is people who often campaign horses young, we have a date on the calendar we're trying to get that horse ready by. And I know so many people who will do things they shouldn't do if things don't go right. So they'll inject them corticosteroids, they'll do some artificial things to get that horse's behavior right, and I'm sure listeners can think of many things that they've known people have done. Those things are wrong. Now, if you have somebody who's waited until that horse is four or five to start the horse under saddle and start showing and competing with them, first of all, they've not done the best thing to make that horse structurally sound, but that individual is patient enough, heck, they've waited four or five years, that if they get a little hiccup in the road, you know what? They say, we'll just give it some time off. That's the mentality that we need. And it doesn't matter whether it's a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, or a 10-year-old. As long as you have that mentality, you're doing the right thing for your horse. Um, But there shouldn't be this huge issue regarding starting horses young because science shows the opposite, that it's actually best. Um, But when we talk about how much exercise and everybody wants this recipe can't really tell you that. All we know is that they need exercise. Um, circular exercise is bad. And again, keep in mind, we also can't go straight forever. We have to turn. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to go too fast on too small of a radius, it does tend to cause problems. And I look at a lot of horses that have been lunged their whole life that have some really bad arthritis going on. Well, it kind of makes sense. And I'm not saying that you should never lunge your horse, but keep in mind that slow is a much better way to go than large or than um, fast and large circles are much better than slow or small circles. And I'm thinking with the two-year-olds, it's been a while since I've had a two-year-old under saddle, but I, it seems like usually their attention span is what dictates how much you can ride a two-year-old because it's not much. Yeah. (laughs) And if you try and do it very long, they'll get fed up and you'll lose ground. Um, Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm actually so impressed. I have a 16-year-old daughter who's turning out to be a really good hand. And what I love is that she has caught on quickly. She loves riding, but she has totally caught on that short rides are so much more productive than long rides because, you know, you're going to bore your horse if you ride them for long. And it's it's not necessarily good. There's a time and a place. Again, you think of you know, kindergarten, second grade, fifth grade, by the time you're a senior in high school, you're much better off. And then in college, hopefully they pay attention. Uh, but, it, you know, the same things with a horse is you have to keep it short when they're young. But there's nothing wrong with doing young. So our next question is from Allison, who's on Prince Edward Island in Canada. And she wants to know if there's any connection of, between early backing and kissing spines. None whatsoever. And it's funny, the internet I always find highly amusing because you'll see a horse that's completely swayed back. And there's uh, technically a, a, a scientific term, which I, I don't recall what it is, but for these horses at the back just drops way down on. And when you see a picture like that, invariably the old keyboard warriors are saying, see, these must have, they must have started this horse when it was a two-year-old. And I'm like, no, it has nothing to do with that. I've started so many horses as two-year-olds or long yearlings, and I've never had that on any of my horses. And I have also known horses that have never been ridden that has had it. In essence, uh, it would be a slight difference, but like scoliosis with the humans. Sometimes there are just back problems. And so whether it's kissing spine or the more extreme version, and again, I wish I could pull the terminology up right away, has nothing to do with that. And so um, if, if people are telling you that, it's always great to try and educate people. Um, you guys have to be judicious in how you say it. Um, but it's a common belief, but there is absolutely nothing that deals with it. It's just a, a, a spinal abnormality. Um, and, and I've seen horses that, you know, you know, <laughs> Uh, we almost got a, a standard bred in for a project that is standard bred, uh, so never been ridden, and holy cow, did that backdrop. Um, we ended up thinking, you know what, I'm sure it was a sweet horse, but realistically, it would ask people would ask way too many questions if we had this horse at the university as one of our, our horses on a nutrition research project. So it's like, oh, I think we need to avoid it. Yeah. Never was ridden, certainly had a major problem. Um, our next question is from Jennifer in Ontario, Canada, and she wants to know at what age can a warm blood start jumping? Boy, that's going to be one of the trickier questions of the night, Jennifer. Thanks. Um, <laughs> the reason why I say it's tricky is, oh, there are so many factors that go into it. And uh, I love jumping. I haven't done it in years, and I was never like this pro or anything, but it's a great sport. The one thing we need to realize is, of course, cartilage is capable of being damaged and it is capable of being damaged by excessive loading and of course jumping is going to create some of the load so with cartilage we do want exercise because we need that load but too much is bad um and you know there's the whole discussion regarding horses uh aging differently and so people believe well a two-year-old's going to mature faster than a uh I don't know what I just said there, but a quarter horse is going to mature faster than a warm blood. Um, and to some degree, I, I think that makes some sense. Um, but I also recognize that doing exercise and work before that skeleton is fully mature is actually beneficial to it. So I would say a little bit. Oh, man, I really want to whip out on this, Jennifer. And I wish I had very specific <laughs> answers. But, but here is the rest of the story, which is um, I like to be guided by science. And I don't know of any studies that have specifically looked at that. So I can tear all parts of this question apart and you know, talk about cartilage and the fact we need to load it, but we don't want to overload it. We can talk about growth rates on these. Um, I, I think at least a little bit is fine, even as an early age. If I had a two-year-old and it was coordinated, um, because that's the other thing is, you know, I look at some of these horses, this yearling that I, I started on her saddle here a month or so ago, man, this horse was running downhill really bad. And so you wouldn't want to lope it very much just because of all the horses going to be putting on those front legs if you did very much of it. So 
depending on the horse that's going to affect at what age, I would start to campaign it a little bit harder in terms of, you know, increasing the jumping. I'm talking right now without giving you an answer. Jennifer, I apologize. I wish I had a great answer for you. I, I guess my take-home message is I wouldn't be afraid of doing it, you know, when your horse is going good and mentally right of doing a little bit, but I, I really couldn't tell you how much because I don't want to screw you up. So our next question is from Mary in Washington, and she wants to know, is it true that Arabian horses mature later physically than other breeds? Uh, I don't really see that. Uh, at Michigan State University, we have a, a large Arabian herd. And, uh, and it was funny, when I first started up here, we were doing this research project that was looking at uh, bone growth of horses that were out on pasture versus ones that had previously been in pasture, and then we put them in the stalls. The graduate student that was working on the project, she wanted to get more horse experience, and she was asking whether we could start them under saddle. And I was like, cool, that's what I do. And so I talked to the farm manager, and the farm manager was initially all opposed to it because, well, you know, these are long yearlings, two-year-olds, and they're Arabians, and so you can't do that. I'm like, uh, I don't know what the problem is. Um, but she eventually gave us permission to do it. And um, you know what? First of all, had absolutely no problems with them, great horses to work with. Um, and we've done endurance studies with uh, Arabians where there are two-year-olds and we have them in simulated endurance exercise, and we've had zero problems with soundness issues or anything like that, even though in the Arabian world, you know, oftentimes they aren't starting horses under saddle until much later, and they certainly aren't doing endurance work. So we do get stuck with a lot of tradition and just things that people have believed. A little bit certainly is going to be on your nutrition program, but I'm not noticing that they mature that dramatically slower or later than other breeds. Um, so I, I'm hesitant to say that I, I see much difference. There might be a little bit, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm not seeing a huge difference. We have a question. And there are probably Arabian people. I was just going to say there are probably Arabian breeders out there that are saying, "Yeah, see, great." And there's others that are saying, "No, no, no." So sorry, folks. Well, I am. <laughs> this is my I, insight. I have a, a warm blood Arab cross, and I kept waiting for her to grow, and kept and didn't start her early, and then finally I just gave up. She never grew. <laughs> so right, exactly. So, yeah. Like, I guess this is how big you're going to be. Um, but uh, anyway, so our next question is from Amy in California, and she wants to know what causes OCD and what's the long-term impact on athletic performance? Sure. Uh, well, OCD refers to osteochondrosis dissecans, um, but I also want to talk about osteochondrosis. And so slight difference. So osteochondrosis is where there's a defect where um, the cartilage doesn't turn to bone correctly and we have a lesion that's created. When we get the OCD part, the dissecans, it's where there's a little, typically a little crack or a little um, part that breaks off. Um, and so it, in real general terms, it's a defect of the cartilage uh, in the joint area. And what's interesting about uh, uh, osteochondrotic lesions is sometimes they exist and we don't even know that they're there and they don't cause any problems ever. And it might be an incidental finding at a time of necropsy and you're like, oh, wow, the source had a lesion, never knew. Or sometimes you're taking radiographs and it's like, oh, look at this, there's a, a lesion and it has no problem. Okay, that's wonderful when that's the case. Sometimes that's not the case. They can have a lesion that's really bothersome. So if you look at a horse's joint, the articular surface should be extremely smooth because you're having these joints glide over one another and, uh, you know, any defects to that, any roughened areas certainly can cause pain. And if we have a little part that breaks off and gets in the joint, that's a real mess. Um, so it can certainly have some long-term implications because it can cause a painful joint. Um, Various factors, and this has been studied for a long time, and nobody's been able to pinpoint it to a simple, uh, one simple thing. Certainly, there seems to be a genetic link. Certain bloodlines tend to have more problems with others. People like to blame fast growth for it. Uh, horses that grow faster do tend to see have a greater incidence, but I still think it's important to look at the nutrition because if they're growing fast, but you don't have the right combination of bricks, going back to our construction workers and bricks analogy, 
then you're going to not be able to put a really good foundation on there. Um, another thing that has been linked is in terms of nutrition. Um, people often feed horses in meals. You know, you grain, give grain in the morning, give grain at the night. And, and there is some research, and it's not a lot of it, but it's enough to raise some suspicion that when we feed grain in meals where we see this increase in blood glucose followed by a spike in insulin, that higher insulin spikes can cause a problem. When I'm feeding young horses, I really love the idea of trying to avoid large meals of grain. And I have no problems giving grain to young horses. I think it can be very beneficial in terms of growth and providing the right nutrients. But man, if you can spread it out throughout the course of the day so that we're not getting that huge spike in glucose followed by that huge spike in insulin, that's one of those things that I think also can play a role in the development of osteochondritis. Other things that have been explored, uh, insufficient amounts of copper in the diet, but if you're feeding a, a, uh, a balanced uh, commercial concentrate, most of those have more copper added to them to avoid that problem because they know that low copper is a problem. Uh, if you're just feeding uh, hay, well, better get it analyzed because there's a lot of hay around that doesn't have enough copper. And, and considering when you're evaluating your horse's diet, you have to look at what the hay provides as well as what the grain provides. Too many people only look at the grain. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of exercise, it's a combination of genetics, um, and, uh, of course, the nutrition plays a role, too. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for tonight. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Nielsen for joining us and answering all the questions. Thank you, Dr. Nielsen. It was really fun. Well, thanks for having me. I absolutely enjoyed it, and I hope everybody's horses turn out to be the superstars. Yep. Um, for everyone who's listening, uh, please join us next month. We're going to be talking about winter horse management. Until then, from all of us at the horse, have a great night.